Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Eche, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. I focus on creating more equitable and inclusive projects, and I want to get more exposure for the artists and developers doing this work. This week on First Coat, we have Catherine Zulon Mann. Catherine is based in Washington, D.C. and creates work in her studio and in public space. She has held various residencies and fellowships, including a Fulbright grant to Taiwan and Arts and Humanities grant in D.C. She has exhibited at the Walters Art Museum, Corcoran Art Gallery, Rawls Museum, U.S. Consulate in Dubai, AIR, and many more galleries. I spoke with Catherine about how she started doing public art, the three most influential people for her art career, and what it's like to be a mom and an artist. Here's our conversation. Welcome to First Coat. Thanks so much for being here today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Catherine Zilan Mann. I am a painter and installation artist in Washington, D.C. I've been based in D.C. for a little bit more than a decade, but I grew up sort of around the area. I moved around a lot as a kid. My father was in the Foreign Service, so I moved every two or three years, and that experience of constantly being an expatriate as a child has definitely informed my work. So I make very large pieces. They're usually paper-based and they're very much about um, transitions and dichotomies and forcing incongruous elements together in an abstract manner and then just seeing what happens. I was so excited when I saw your work at Air Gallery. (laughs) I don't know if you, you saw it this year? Yeah, I think you were out of the country. I texted you. I was like, oh my gosh, I saw your painting. Because I was at, it was earlier this, it was either earlier this year or late last year. It was early this year, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I'm so glad you saw that show. Yeah, I was there and I looked over and I was like, (laughs) Catherine's work? And then I, and I was telling my friend, like, I'm pretty sure this is, you know, your work. And then I got closer and I was like, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's obviously your work. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Was it large and full of little minute details? Like, yes, then it was mine. (laughs) Yeah. I I feel like you have, I I don't want to say that you have a color palette because I don't think that it's necessarily consistent at all, but there's, there's something about your work that's both random and specific try (laughs) (laughs) that's that's generally the goal randomness plus specificity uh, and see how those things can kind of live together yeah I mean I'm like I literally start things I, I try to incorporate random materials and random processes with specific decisions as well so I begin every painting by pouring paint and ink on the paper as it lays on the floor which is a random kind of chance operation and then I build into it with a lot of much more controlled elements so yeah that's a pretty apt way to describe it (laughs) how would you define a painting or a landscape painting I so I think that I make landscape paintings or at least I describe my work as dealing with landscape and the history of landscape and landscape painting God, I don't know. I don't know how to describe what a painting is. I can do a better job with describing what a landscape painting is. I think that a landscape painting is, it's, it's a picture that is dealing with the environment. And that environment, hmm. 
you can think of in the broadest term, broadest ways that you want to. Um, like my work, it's not your traditional Western idea of what a landscape would be, which is like a real kind of vista with perspective that you're observing from one particular site. That's not what I do. They're not like mountainscapes with like a river running through it. Um, <laughs> but I do think of them as at least in the family or dealing with the history of landscape painting because they're very much about space and creating space. They actually incorporate a lot of traditional elements from various landscape paintings through history. And that, for me, that is usually re referencing Chinese Sumi ink painting and Buddhist painting rather than something from the Hudson River School. Although right. I'm actually influenced by the Hudson River School as well. I just think of them as, they're, they're paintings, they're, they're pieces that are about place. And they are both uh, describing places and also creating a place and all of the conversations that go around what place is and what our environment that we live in and think about is. So that's kind of my fodder for what I think about. So on that line of thought, how do you create work that is on a particular site physically or is site specific or both? So I started making site specific work a little bit later than when I like first started painting. Originally, I, I just thought of myself as a pretty traditional painter. I made rectilinear paintings that could be like hung above somebody's couch. Um, I have always been really interested in creating immersive spaces. I want my pieces to feel like you could step into them and get lost in them. For that reason, I work really large and then populate these large pieces with a lot of detailed minutiae. And I realized that if I started to work site specifically and if I dealt with the architecture of a space, that just adds to the feeling of immersion. Because I do a lot of maximalist kind of pieces and I do a lot of repetition, I often want the pieces to feel like they're a little bit cancerous and kind of can take over a space um, and engulf you. Um, so if, it is, if a piece is literally moving over floors and around corners and onto the ceiling and up columns, then it's going to feel more immersive it starts to have a conversation with the place that it is in. Um, and that conversation is sometimes something of a, it's like taking over the place. I really enjoy that kind of experience that I can give the viewer. Yeah, I think that's something that you get a sense of just going into your studio, just seeing works in progress. I think you can really tell that they're not supposed to just be like in a frame above a couch. They're really right. meant to be within the space itself. In I do way. sometimes make, things that are within frames of couches, actually. <laughs> Those are cool too. Uh, but I, I like being able to have, I think that was, it was actually one of your questions is um, being able to have two sides to my practice. Mm -hmm. So I do make pieces that are rectilinear and that mm -hmm. are like the, your, your understanding of where it begins and ends is pretty clear mm -hmm. and relatively traditional. Um, but I want to kind of balance that with my installation practice or my public art practice. And generally the public art pieces are not rectilinear and are able to take over spaces in a more interesting way because I've provided spaces to kind of riff off of. How did you first start making art? So 
I am one of those annoying people who always knew what I wanted to do, <laughs> like ever since I was a child. Like I always knew I wanted to be an artist. And I, I mean, I guess I was making art as a kid. Like every art, every kid makes art to some extent. And when I look back at the type of things that I was making when I was a kid, they're very directly correlated with what I do now. And it's kind of nice to see that like these kind of instincts or impulses are have always been within me and i think that's the case for a lot of artists like if you look at what they were interested in how they played as children mm -hmm. they're still playing the same way as grown-ups and now they just have a fancy title to go along with it um so i made like long kind of vertical uh, i'm sorry long horizontal scroll like drawings as a child that I would populate with like characters that were landscapes with things in them. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> and I would like make my brother do help me do it as well. Like when I was, you know, seven or eight or something like that. Like, I guess the question is, is always, I really focused on becoming a serious painter. I, I actually originally started painting as a, um, I was trained as a traditional Sumi ink painter. I'm half Taiwanese, so, and I'm American. And I did live in Taiwan a little bit as a child, but I also would come back to Taiwan in the summers as a teenager to visit my family and would spend months at a time there and study under a Sumi ink master. So that's how I originally started painting, was learning traditional Sumi ink painting. So that would be like copying this teacher's um, technique of making bamboo or cherry blossoms or orchids. So that's how I, I first learned to paint. Wow. That's really interesting that it's from the very beginning, there's really obvious influences in your work. I don't think that's unique or I think that's actually kind of, it's kind of, I think that almost every artist would be able to trace something back mm -hmm. to, because you like, what's the great thing about being an artist is you're able to like shape an entire career around investigating the things that are personally interesting to you. <laughs> so those personal interests existed when I was a child. Um, I'm just lucky enough to be able to continue exploring those same things. Do you do things that either don't feel like your work or are just experiments and then edit them out or in developing my own work in my own style, which I feel like I'm very much at the beginning of as an artist, I really enjoy trying out a lot of different things. And part of that is like developing new skill sets, right? Like taking a portrait oil class to learn how to paint portraits or whatever. Um, but I really admire when, when an artist has gotten to the point when they like, no matter what they do, it feels like them. And I think that's a matter of just like being more experienced obviously as an artist, but to your point of like the things that you were doing as a kid, you're still doing and still exploring. Yeah, I'm just wondering if any of that resonates or like how- I feel like that question off. might have something to do more with quantity than quality. Hmm. You know, it's not so much that like you get to a certain place as an artist and then everything fits into your oof. If that's how you pronounce it, is that how you pronounce it? Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, it's more that like, uh, you make so many things that I, they all feel like you because they are all coming from you and I am I'm not um, intelligent enough to, ex to expand my work to encompass uh, something beyond myself. Hmm. Um, I, I bet 
if I looked at a bunch of pieces of yours all together, I would feel like they were you. Yeah. Um, it's something I, that I, I think that it's, you're able to, you should be able to do both, right? You should be yeah. able to constantly be exploring, but then have it all still feel like it's, 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 it's you. It's coming from, from who you are. And I think that in terms of like different artists and how they do that, you can see some artists are more like tinkerers and so any explorations are just kind of like moving off the path slightly and slowly and it's a slow evolution of change in terms of how their work is able to mutate and develop over time and then other people are much more revolutionary or at least it feels revolutionary to an outsider and you know one year they're working with steel sculpture and then suddenly the next year they're doing dance performances. Mm-hmm. I am more of the tinkerer type. I hope that I'm able to like change my work and like and have exploration, but I am not like suddenly working in uh, portraiture with oils, oil pastels. Like I've been working in paper with water-based media and Sumi ink for the past decade. But that's because I feel like there's still enough room within those three materials to have a lot of exploration. Yeah, definitely. How do you approach materiality and form in your work? And specifically, how is it different from when you're creating a piece that you know is going to hang somewhere within some kind of rectangle somewhere and a piece that's going to be installed in a public space? Um, You talked about it a little bit, but how do you, both from an aesthetic perspective and then also like physically, how how do you approach those two things? Well, I'm, I'm like very wedded to paper. I am only interested in paper, almost, almost <laughs> completely. It's not 100%. Sometimes I'm forced to do stuff on other things, other substrates, but I am pretty wedded to paper as material. Um, and that actually causes its own types of problems when you are also a public artist, um, because paper is a really terrible material for public art. Um, (laughs) because it doesn't last so I I generally will I find now that well first of all my public art career is not that long I'm still kind of starting out in the public sphere but most of the pieces that I have done for public spaces have been indoor interior Mm -hmm. um, specific pieces where I am able to still use some amount of paper the biggest difference between the sphere of the, you know, just making work for myself um, versus public stuff and my avowed interest in paper is people don't want paper for public art pieces because they don't want their, their expensive piece to disintegrate over time. I've been able to find a lot of workarounds for that. Um, I sometimes will work on UPO paper, which can be back-mounted to hmm. Sintra or wood, and then the entire thing can be laminated. I have a contractor who helps me do that so that the final piece may be on paper, but it doesn't look like paper at all, it's as if it's a painting on wood. Uh, or aluminum. You can actually background it on aluminum as well. So that's one way. Another method that I use is essentially decoupaging paper, pasting Mm -hmm. it to the wall, sometimes working on vinyl or uh, wallpaper material, Mm -hmm. and then pasting it, and then combining that uh, collaged on paper that's collaged directly to a site with direct-to-wall mural painting. 
um, mm -hmm. so that it doesn't, so that it has this kind of back and forth between the immediacy of the mural painting and the fact that something has actually been pasted and collaged on there. And I have also done work that's not on paper for public pieces. Those are the only, the only time I work on a substrate that is not paper, it's for a public piece that has required me to do that. <laughs> So I've done some murals on, on directly on the wall, mm -hmm. some on wood, some on aluminum as well. Do you enjoy working that way? It's okay. <laughs> 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 I mean, I like the challenge of doing something different. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, not, I'm not completely, I am able to do something if it's not on paper. But all of my interests in terms of what the reasons why I paint are very related to paper because I'm interested in Sumi ink painting, which is only done on paper and creating a place for myself that is somewhere between the canon of Western painting and the canon of Sumi ink painting. That's really connected to paper for me. So mm -hmm. I'm happy to have explorations outside of that. And if I'm going to make like an exterior piece, it can't be on paper. I understand that. So I'm a flexible person who can exercise common sense, but I still love paper the most. Have you ever pitched a project where you t like where the piece is supposed to disintegrate outside? No, I I don't. Who would want that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody. I I could imagine that being pretty exciting. Actually, that's a really wonderful idea. I'm gonna have to do that. Um, I'll just have to find some sort of a temporary um, public art call. I feel like if any of the difficulties I have, like creatively with making public art, it's because of the necessity of making this thing last. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, like, I, at least for me, that feels like a burden. Mm -hmm. um, and something like this difficult issue that I have to deal with that, uh, mm -hmm takes my choices and narrows them. Mm -hmm. um, so what if, if time is taken out of the equation and longevity, then you suddenly have so much more freedom. It's just way more fun and interesting. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, one of your questions was, which was your first ever public art piece? And I was about to like, I, I had it all ready to go. What was my first like commissioned art piece, mm -hmm. which was, like this big interior uh, mural for the MGM casino. <laughs> uh, but now that you actually describe temporary art, I can think back and realize that actually my first public piece was a temporary piece that I didn't even have like on my radar. I wasn't even thinking huh. of it as a public art piece because it was temporary, it was performance oriented and nobody ever saw it again after like a few performances that we did. I, uh, right after grad school, I um, spent the summer in Dayton, Ohio with a residency there that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but it was this beautiful residency called the uh, Blue Sky Dayton. And it paired artists with groups of middle schoolers in, in Dayton. And I lived there for two months and I created my own work in collaboration with these middle schoolers. So usually if you like hear about like artists plus like students, you would think like it's sort of like a teaching uh, program, but it was actually not. It was an artist centric program rather than a student centric program. So it was about artists making their own work and then just having these kids around who could 
incorporate themselves into the process in any way the artist thought made sense. Um, so the people who did that program all like use these kids or worked with these kids in different ways. For me, it turned out to be extraordinarily collaborative and I made work that I never believed I would have made um, because to me it sounded so corny, but it ended up being like the best thing I've ever done. So one of them was uh, we found this empty warehouse in downtown Dayton or an empty building um, unused and it had this large pit in the center of the space. It, it went about 15 feet down and then the entire square of the pit was about 30 by 60. So like a relatively large pit with no banisters or anything. Um, I, I don't really know why it was there, but I, I mentioned earlier that I start all of my paintings by pouring paint. So I thought at the time, well, I have like this, I have a budget and I have a bunch of ki uh, middle school kids. We can pour paint into the pits and we can use super soakers and we can, uh, <laughs> and there was a dancer who was doing the program as well. And he said, well, I can have my kids dance as you pour paint on them, <laughs> which <laughs> I wish, you know, like if I were, if, if this was just something that I was the only person putting input into a project, that is not an idea I would have come up with because that's <laughs> very easy. Like, oh, we'll pour paint and then we'll pour paint on people and they'll dance. It sounds a little bit ridiculous, right? But it turned out to be one of the best projects I've ever done in my entire career. Um, just all of these middle school and high school kids, we um, choreographed it. So they all <laughs> poured paint at certain points during um, a song and other students danced. Um, and we essentially made this like small ocean of latex paint in the bottom of this um, unused building and then we let all of that dry and then came back into it and, and painted into it so that it became this kind of mm. encompassing installation and uh, that piece certainly doesn't exist anymore I'm sure the building has been turned into condos or something at this point um, but I just think that it's really wonderful that I and the dancers and the middle school students who are now all like probably you know they all have graduated college um we'll always have this memory of some this happening that existed in this place yeah i think when people think about public art they often think about a, a wall that is painted and it's a one-time thing and that's and that's that and i think really investigating what the the need is in that community or in that place um and how art can actually develop connections and and create memories. I think that's what actually makes it more successful than this one-time thing that, you know, you spend a lot of time just figuring out, like, especially in, in the work that I do in consulting for real estate developers, there's so much lead up time of like contracts and budgets and like all this insurance. And then the piece is done and that's it. And I think what, what I'm really trying to push my clients to do is to think about it as more of a holistic process and that when you're collaborating with artists in the community, there's so many opportunities to create something that's much much more than just the piece itself. And not to discredit the, the work because 
I always want a really amazing mural to be done or a really amazing site-specific piece. But a, a lot of people just, they don't want to pay for a one-time thing that disintegrates or is done or that you don't, you know, gets built over or whatever. Um, or on the flip side, some artists don't want to put their time into that because that that's not interesting to them either, right? Like murals were for, like first created as something that is going to be on a wall to like tell a story or or communicate a message and like last for as long as it can. But yeah, I, I think that's interesting that that was the first thing you did in, in public space. And that's part of why I'm calling when I talk about projects like public realm projects, because sometimes they're not in a actual public space. They're kind of like in a space that could be public or that a public, like that anyone could maybe come up, come across, you know, like maybe it's a, like a lobby in a building, for example, like the project you're working on and, or I don't know, a, a lot of businesses and restaurants and retailers now are using art in their designs, even from the very beginning. Sometimes that's a mural. Sometimes that's a site specific piece. Sometimes that's like an activity that happens. Um, I think like one thing that when, when, working on a temporary piece, like having documentation is so key. Um, I, I think I've seen a photo of that, of that project you were talking about. And that was so amazing. And that's, that gave me other ideas of other types of work that I could see you doing that otherwise we wouldn't know, right? Like, so there's still, there's value in the doing, I think. And then there's also, it is helpful to have documentation in some way, but like you said, like the memories they're going to have forever, everybody involved. Yeah. And I also, I, th I mean, I think back to what I thought art was when I was in middle school mm -hmm. and my idea of like what art was and especially what art was that I could create mm -hmm. was strictly two dimensional and like relatively small scale. And, you know, it just was not a very exploratory or wide ranging idea of what was possible for myself. Mm -hmm. So like that, that project was really special because it opened up everybody's including myself's idea of what was possible just i mean simply in terms of scale for one thing um but also it was just a blast that's awesome are you an artist submit your portfolio at distillcreative.com artist you'll get on our distill directory our artist database and be considered for upcoming art commissions how do you balance your fine art practice with your public practice or do you consider them, like, do you approach them separately? Do you, like, work on different things different days? Or can you tell me a little bit about just how you, how you work? <laughs> um, so I used to, I went through, like, a couple of different periods in my career. Um, before I had my kids, I mostly focused on the rectilinear paintings. Mm -hmm. And I also taught. So I mm -hmm. would make my money by teaching um and then i'd make these like paintings and i had some galleries that represented me that would sell them and that was that was like a pretty traditional way of like making your way in the world as an artist um and around the time that i had my son in that period of like 18 months around that period i started out with i think i had five galleries that represented me and by the time that period was over all but one of them had gone out of business. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, I guess that's just normal, but at the time it just felt, especially because it was around the period where I was like transitioning to being a mother mm -hmm. and how scary that can be. 
it really felt like the end of my career. Like I wasn't going to be an artist anymore. Like how, I mean, no, I don't have any galleries to sell my paintings. What am I going to do financially? Um, and it was around that time that I first started looking into public art as a way of financially taking things into my own hands. And it made sense for me because I am interested in working large anyway, and I am never going to be able to get a bigger canvas than what a public art piece can provide. So I started doing applying to calls, and I also really liked how public art you can have a little bit. I mean, as an artist, it's how much control over your destiny do you ever really have? But at least I didn't have to like work only with a middleman and just like hope that a gallery might like show me favor. I can apply to as many public art calls as I want to. And I don't have to be charming at a gallery opening or anything or know the right people for me to get a call back. Um, so yeah, I started doing public art. It's been about five years for me um, of doing public work. I do both at the same time. I continue to do both. I think I split my time about 50-50 between the public art pieces and the standalone um, pieces for myself, um, which I feels like the right balance. Um, I don't think that my public art work is really that different than what I do for myself. Um, if a person is going or an institution is going to hire me to make something public, they know what I do. They know that I cannot provide a perfect rendering of what the finished piece is going to look like beforehand. Like I, I can make a digital mock-up and can have a sense of the style and the themes that I'm going to go for in a finished piece, but I never know what my finished work will look like. Uh, and that includes for commissions and public work. So the only people who have ever hired me have understood that. So I haven't felt like I've had to like dumb down my work or make it more palatable. I don't have particularly like racy or overtly political work in the first place. So it's not that difficult for me to do that. Um, to me, why do I make public work? Um, it's because the canvas of a public space is always something new and challenging to deal with. It gives me opportunities to collaborate with interesting people and it's a really great money maker or it can be. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, there's a definitely a range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, yeah. What advice would you give someone who wants to pursue a career similar to yours? So I didn't start out like in, I got my MFA not thinking that I would ever do any public art. I actually thought public art was generally lame or, or you know, or just kind of pedestrian and mm -hmm. all of the hard edges had been kind of softened. And, you know, now having had done it for a little while and seeing the bureaucracies that you have to deal with, I can see that there is an, an element of truth to that, but it certainly is not lame. I don't think that public art I think public art can be really rich and fascinating. And my experience with my public art pieces, I'm just as proud of, of I'm more proud of many of them than I am of the work that I've just done for myself in the studio and shown in a gallery. In terms of like, if you want to start in the public art realm, it's difficult. You, if you want to apply for a call, it's hard to apply if you have not had any experience doing anything and you don't have a portfolio. 
So one of the first things that I did when I thought that I should start trying to apply for these calls is I did a few um, pieces for free mm -hmm. um, for family and friends. <laughs> so I, my father-in-law has a little farm store um, where he sells local produce in Western Massachusetts. So I offered to make a mural for his store for free. Um, and I made, I think the piece was 20 feet by nine feet, something like that, like a relatively large mural mm -hmm. on the side of his store. Um, I suddenly have something from my portfolio mm -hmm. that shows that I can do murals and I know what I'm doing. I've done it at least once in the past. <laughs> um, so I think that that's, uh, that's one good first step. What's one thing you wish you had known 10 years ago? I think that I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, both in terms of just general attitudes and understanding of the art world and also like really specific mistakes with dealing with specific people and entities. I think I worked with too many galleries without uh, really vetting them and standing up for myself in, um, in working with them. I had one gallery go out of business while owing me a significant amount of money, but they went bankrupt, so I had no recourse. Oh, geez. Um, but they had owed me that money for months and months before they went bankrupt. So what's a mistake? Like I should have been more aggressive in getting what was due, for, due to me. I think that I have in general been too passive and not aggressive in standing up for myself in both the gallery realm and also in the public art realm. Um, I have one experience that is it's not a failure, but it could have been a failure, where I was a finalist for a public art piece in a lobby. And I was a finalist with a good number of other DC and Baltimore area artists. So I really wanted the job. I put together a proposal with a budget that I then turned into the curator who could have just accepted my budget as it was, but because she was a good person, she came back to me and said, you need to add at least 10K to this budget. Um, you're underselling yourself. It's something I see all the time. Um, I generally see it with uh, female artists, women huh. identifying artists will undersell themselves and male identifying artists will either be like right at the budget that I think is appropriate or they will massively oversell themselves. Um, and it was a really helpful thing to learn that about myself and also about society um, that I had been under budgeting um, for this project and therefore also for all of the previous projects that I had been uh, putting proposals together for. Um, what my idea of how much I was worth was uh, too small, too limited. Um, I should have been charging a lot more. That's really interesting because I have totally <laughs> said that to people before on projects. I remember an instance where I was reaching out to an artist who was like a finalist for a project. And I, I always ask for a budget before, like same thing before I give the actual budget or the, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that might be involved. Like sometimes a client that I'm working with, they don't have a budget. So there's like that like weird chicken egg thing. But anyway, this this particular artist I was interested in for this project, their budget for the let's for the mural, it was like five thousand dollars. And I was like, uh, so their budget's like twenty-five thousand. So can you just get me something a little bit closer to that? And and 
I'm always trying to advocate like, and, and she, it was a female art, artist and like, I was going to ask that. But. Yeah, I do see it more. Well, okay. A few things. One, I am very like women and people of color first in my proposals. Like that's something I am extremely conscious of. And honestly, is sometimes hard because of just a lot of factors that, you know, would take too long to go into. But one of the things I struggle with is, yeah, then at, then like kind of coaching them on on the budgeting pr- price because I, I might not always know for a particular type of work, like what the range is, you know? So I don't, but I also, it's like the artist should have some idea of what range they're in, I think to some degree, but then there's also that other weird world of like, a public art, like a, a government commissioned piece is going to have a different budget than a real estate developer commission. You know, there's like different types of clients that have different types of budgets. That, I mean, it is completely confusing. It's completely so confusing. confusing. And so like, there's you no have to price yourself differently for different people. It's Maybe, fun, right? I don't know. Like, but men don't, I think is the thing. Men mm. don't. They just like, <laughs> or it seems like they just have like their price for square. F- and this is this is particular to murals. I would say it's like a whole nother thing with other like sculpture or different like different types of mediums um, or a one time activation or a site like a temporary site specific piece or a performance. You know, there's lots of different things. But like artists should be able to value themselves however they want, really. And it it's like what you're getting out of it, and if it's reaching the goals that. If, if it's being commissioned or if it's just like a project you're getting funding for, then it should just be whatever it costs, you know? And I think that's something that is hard both to know what it, what it, like what your work is worth, but then also um, being aware of just like the institutional factors that have made women artists and also people of color artists, I think, just devalue their work before they even like put it, put a budget in front of anyone. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really scary. And it's, um, it was like shocking to me to see how it was something that I had personally internalized. And it's hard because it's, it's like, you're right, especially with murals, because there are so few um, tangible budgetary elements to like really hold on to. It's like paint and a coating and some paintbrushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and some like spray paint. I mean, like it's it's so much of it is the how much it costs is because of the labor and your personal time that's going into it. And then that is something that can feel very subjective. And so you're up against and you're up against other people and you want the job. And mm-hmm. it's really scary to think about how much you are personally worth and then think that you might get somebody else might like be on sale compared to you. <laughs> Right. Um, so it's definitely not something that I figured out at all. But it, at least it was very helpful to get that one interaction to realize where I was kind of leaning, mm-hmm. which was towards underselling myself by massive amounts. So like knowing that about myself was really helpful. And I have a feeling that most female identifying artists are in that same boat. I think one thing that's really hard too is that, again, it's different on the type, particularly talking about public art and commissions. Government entities have a whole different way of doing things. But with real estate developers, what I found is like, if they really want that artist and they really love whatever the proposal is, they will get to that number. It's like, it's not really a question of how much, like there's not, often they say they don't have a budget because they like, have lots of money thrown like it's just like a weird world and they're always pulling it from different budgets so like they always can find the money but it's so hard to know what 
what that amount might be. Yeah, and I, I also think that it's it's hard because you're a individual and as an artist, you probably are not rich and you're working with, if you're working in the commercial sphere, you're working with corporations or with entities that have so much more, like the meaning of money to them is so much different than the meaning of money to you. Mm -hmm. So like that job that I was referring to, like I initially came to the curator with a 15K budget and then it got bumped up to 25K. Like to me, 25K is so much money. <laughs> but to this organization, it was not, it's, it's nothing. Yeah. It's pennies. It's a it job. might have been like a quarter of their full budget and they had a few <laughs> other projects and they could have like added 20 here or there. Like it's, I would say I'm often working with like full, it really depends on the project, but usually when I'm working with clients, like they're doing a couple projects. And so there's like a bigger bucket of money that you can kind of move around and be like, oh, well, if this person can do, or like, it's, yeah, it's, it's really weird. The the budgeting aspects are really weird. But one thing that I think that I wish particularly like specifically real estate developers would do is actually set a budget because if they had a budget, then you could say, okay, their full budget is this. And for, so you can have this many projects for this much or this many for this much, but because it's always like, we don't know, like see what you can find. It's like, okay. Convenient. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really curious if there's anything you've read or listened to that's inspired you recently. So, so I am constantly listening to audiobooks while I paint. Um, I have a lot of like repetitive detail work. Uh, so I listen to the most recent book that I listened to was uh, Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Eng. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that book? Mm -hmm. I've heard of it, but I haven't read everywhere. it. I did not love Little Fires Everywhere. I thought that the I, I have a chip on my shoulder about stereotypical artist characters. <laughs> Huh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but uh, Little Fires Everywhere is about the experience of being a half white, half Taiwanese girl in high school, uh, which is which and, and like how difficult it is to be a biracial person and be the first of your kind kind of um, mm -hmm. have no one else around you like you other than your siblings. Um, and that is an experience that I had and I had a very hard time in high school. So that was a really compelling book um, because it felt like it was about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I also listen to a lot of sci-fi. I'm interested in world building. So that's, you know, world building. That's my favorite thing. What are some sci-fi authors you listen? You're, you're saying you listen to the books of them. Yes, listen okay. to the books of them. Yes. Um, so I think Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin is mm -hmm. my favorite sci-fi novel. I also recently listened to the His Dark Materials uh, series, which was amazing. Um, I don't really have like high tastes, but, <laughs> but anything that's gonna like, especially series or trilogies, anything that like takes up a seriously long amount of time in the studio and it can and, uh, kind of transport you to another world, I'm there for it. Have you read The Word for World is Forest? No. By Ursula K. Le Guin? I, sh yeah. I need to. It's amazing. It's like, it's very short, so it doesn't really fit your like long, <laughs> a long book requirement <laughs> but um it's really amazing and I loved it I kind of more recently started reading sci-fi and I didn't realize how relevant it was I guess who are three people who've been most influential to you 
My director in graduate school, um, I went to MFA at MICA, and my director was Grace Hardigan, who founded the MICA painting program MFA. Um, she was this force of nature abstract expressionist, and she was a very difficult person and difficult mm -hmm. teacher. She definitely made me and every other student cry many times. She was not a fan of my work. She, I had come out of, I had a small stint of being a graphic designer. I'd done some illustrations. My work was pretty, it was not gestural. It was relatively graphic. There was a lot of black outlines around things. I was still like very maximalist and interested in detail in, in, in large spaces but it there was very little room for experiment or chance and that's something she as an abstract expressionist hated so it's because of her and some of her like snippy critiques of me that i started pouring paint so if it was up to her i would have just like only poured paint and just like stopped and been exactly like morris lewis or something but i thought it could be really interesting to use this language of abstract expressionism, pouring paint, and then incorporate a pattern and detail and design, which are all things that she hated. She used to say that pattern would tickle the eye, but leave the soul untouched. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is now that I think about it, which was actually a very like Eurocentric way to think about art. <laughs> so um, that's terrible. I totally disagree. But I, I thought it would be I, I I liked the idea of like incorporating, bringing in like highly detailed pattern, repetition, silkscreen, controlled elements. And then also having, yeah, having this one abstract expressionist moment. Well, so that's one. Uh, second person, Grace Hardigan actually died while I was a student. Oh my God. Um, yeah, I was wondering. She passed away and we had a couple semesters where Joyce Kozloff came in and worked with the remaining students in that program. So she is an artist based in New York. She uh, was a big figure in the, is a big figure in the pattern and decoration movement um, in the 70s. So she's like exactly the opposite of race <laughs> of like abstract expressionism. It's like a lot of very busy, full pieces with tons of pattern and detail and decoration that are drawn from all like cultures. All these various like textile patterns and tile patterns that are kind of brought into these very full paintings. So that was kind of like the other side. Like I have this like one woman who really kind of brought me around to gesture and movement and physicality in painting, and then another who brought me around to detail and pattern and high levels of control. And then the last person is, I'd say, uh, Makita Ahuja, who was based in Baltimore and recently moved to Connecticut. She does these figure paintings that are generally self-portraiture, but they she calls it auto-mythography. It's um, creating mythology around herself and putting herself into the canon of the history of portraiture. So she is actually the founder of that Blue Sky Dayton program that I described. That's how I first met her. And she's just a, another force of nature, this, a person that I'm constantly looking to and learning from, especially when it comes to how do you place yourself in history as a woman of color? 
mm-hmm. uh, making work in a relatively traditional medium, uh, which is definitely what I'm doing. So she's been this kind of beacon that I've been following for some time. So three really amazing women. We'll definitely link to those artists in the show notes. I'm wondering, since you brought that up, have you read The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction by Ursula K. Le Guin? No, apparently I need to read a lot more. It's (laughs) it's an essay. Um, I just read it. I'm part of this dystopian short story club right now during... Really um, the time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like, it's shockingly therapeutic, but it it talks about just in history, we're told that like the hero or the warrior or the, the combat is what changed things and moved things forward. But her theory is like, maybe the first thing that we actually had wasn't a sword or like a a tool of some sort, maybe it was actually a container and like the concept of like holding and carrying and like more of that other side of just thinking about it differently. And that kind of made me think about just all the ways in which I personally feel like women and people of color have been obviously underrepresented in art history and history in general when you, you grow up in like America, but also how hard it is to fit yourself within the canon or like having to do double work of knowing all these other histories and then like what is known in the art worlds or like the Western art world. Um, and that's something I'm personally struggling with. I'm doing research on like women Mexican artists from like the, the 1920s. And it's like all these amazing people that I didn't know about. And like this whole world that I just, even though I'm Mexican American and even though my parents, you know, did the best they could and taught me a lot about my own culture, like you don't grow up learning, you, you would learn about like Frida Kahlo and that's, and like Diego Rivera and like the, the mur- like the male muralists maybe. Um, but not about all the women doing amazing work and like not just as visual artists, but also as writers or dancers or researchers, you know, just. I love what you said about like having to do double work too, because when you only learn that one history, then it changes not only your understanding of the canon, but also like your entire vocabulary and how, Mm -hmm. like how you even come to art in the first place. Like your question about landscape painting, and like that canon of landscape painting, if you're only, I am also fighting against this doctrine uh, that I've kind of been brought up with that landscape painting has to come from one perspective. And that perspective is singular, individualistic and godlike, <laughs> uh, which is obviously coming from white males. Like that's, that's the idea. That's this one way that landscape has been understood in the Western canon for centuries and centuries. And that's not actually the only way that you can think about a place or about living in a place, but it is something that we're constantly fighting against and I am constantly fighting against. And I actually think that that was one of the reasons why I really loved everything I never told you because it's so much about never feeling like you belong, Mm -hmm. um, like you can fit yourself into a trajectory where other people are also fitting in with you and always feeling like you're on the outside. And I think that that's the way that women and people of color, when you look, it's like you're trying to insert yourself into this space but also having to like relearn everything about the canon around you. It's really hard. Yeah. Are you a real estate developer looking for a unique amenity for your site? Get our free guide, 10 tips for commissioning a site-specific artwork at our website, distillcreative.com. 
What's something you wished I had asked you? Maybe one thing that I'd love to talk about, just like if we're nearing the end, is um, motherhood and parenting and a career in the arts. It's funny because I definitely had that on my list. In an interview view you did with Friend of the Artist, you say, don't relegate your art making to stolen moments. Having a family is totally possible. I don't have a family, but I am (laughs) developing a business and I still find it maintaining my studio time. Like this week, for example, I haven't had any studio time and it's like really bothering me. And so, yeah, I can't even, I would like to have a family at some point. And I think for a while I was terrified, like, oh my God, I have to do like my whole art career before I have kids, which obviously is not what you should need to do or have to do or whatever. But yeah, can you, can you elaborate a little bit more? Oh, I forgot about that particular quote. That, that quote seems like really rosy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm like homeschooling, but actually I think that I can still stand behind it because it's the, the problem of it is the concept or the vocabulary of the, the term stolen moments, as if you are stealing something that, is uh, away from what really matters right so we like grow up in this society where women are taught to believe that any time that is like taken away from your family is you're stealing it you're stealing the moments from your family like your own time (laughs) Like I'm stealing my own time from like the people who really uh, it really belongs to which is my children which is horrible (laughs) that like right but like even if we don't think that we believe that like that term stolen moments is a term that everybody understands and that's actually what's the underpinning of that that term so i before i had kids i also felt like i would have to like finish my whole career first and then have kids (laughs) which is not realistic you shouldn't do that <laughs> I mean, that's not a thing like that that's, i mean that's not possible to at least it wasn't to me to like get to any place in my career that i'd be satisfied and then just like stop everything um i actually feel like i have had i've been I, i've come into a better place in my career since having kids i think part of it is because of that transition away from solely making work for gallery spaces that i was describing so like that moment of upheaval when a bunch of those galleries all went out of business was actually in the end turned out to be a good thing for me but I have a really supportive partner he's currently taking care of the kids right now so that I can take care I can like be on a phone call that is definitely not something to ignore or pretend is not a part of the equation but if you are able to have some level of support it makes all of the difference I think the problem with our society is is that like asking so for support seems like it should it's it's some sort of favor that you don't really deserve because you ought to be doing everything on your own and so if you come up in this society where you believe that all of the work has to be done by you alone then of course you're not going to have time to have our career and also a day job and also raise your kids but that isn't the only way to raise children you know like it should be a more communal experience than that and it can be um it's just that you're fighting against the tide when it comes to american expectations in society mm-hmm. i remember the last maybe the last time i saw you actually when i happened to be at stable randomly and you were there cuz you have a studio there yes, and yes yeah that was like, good how often do you bring your kids to the studio? 
Well, like, how does that change how your studio works? Before the pandemic, <laughs> I brought May. I brought my daughter to the studio every day. It was just as much her space as it is mine. Um, yeah. I actually split it into um, a corner of it, a relatively large corner, was all toys and a play mat. And she spent the same amount of time there every day that I did, which was a, few <laughs> a lot of time I would make work while she was sleeping. But a lot of the time she actually was one of those kids that it's possible to like just put her in a corner and she'd do her own thing and I could paint. Wow. That was that that also is like partially luck of the draw, I think. Like my son, I never would have been able to do that. So I have a home studio as well. Now I kind of split my time between the two studios and I no longer feel comfortable bringing my kids to the studio because there are some shared spaces. So I mm -hmm. end up now doing my studio work after they go to bed. I kind of do a handoff with my husband where I take care of them during the mornings and then up to their nap time around three and then I go to the studio and stay at the studio until like two in the morning. Um, so I actually get much more time in the studio now than I did pre-pandemic, which is a weird little silver lining, I suppose, to this awful situation. Yeah, it's weird how it's, it's changed my sleep schedule and like at first I was like, oh, I'm so annoyed. I'm going to bed really late and I'm not waking up super late, but I am waking up later than I used to. But then it's like, what difference does it make? I feel like I'm in college again. Is yeah. It's really like, you just do what you feel like doing and then it's <laughs> like more fun. Yeah. We're, we're definitely lucky. The pandemic that I've seen has, I think that with, if you are in a heterosexual relationship with kids, like sexism is going to enter into your relationship when the kids come. And that's, I, I, I don't know anybody that that hasn't been the case for. And it's really, really hard. And especially as an artist, because I do have a more flexible schedule, I found mm -hmm. that I was doing the bulk of the childcare, even though with public art and my career, I was bringing in more money <laughs> than my partner and yet doing all of the childcare. So like uh, there was definitely a level of resentment around that mm -hmm. and now, because of the stay-at-home orders and everything, suddenly our domestic relationship and labor has become a lot more egalitarian. I, I, I'd be curious to know if that's like a universal trend. It seems like it might be if, if men are being forced to come home more, then they're probably doing more cleaning. I don't know. I hope so. Anecdotally, though, okay, from one person, I heard that they're still doing all the cooking and cleaning of the dishes and things and like meal prep. And then another person, uh, this was actually in my NYC Crit Club, uh, which is like we meet and do a crit critique of each other every week. The guest crit critique, she's an artist and also a mom. And she was saying how, I don't want to misquote her, but like it sounded like what she was saying is that her husband, because he made more money or like because he had like a normal job, he had to work during normal job hours and she had to watch the kids because she's an artist and has more of like a like a flexible schedule, so to speak. Right. Um, and so I am a little bit nervous that for, for women, like, yeah, it's like a weird, maybe in some cases it actually becomes more terrible for people. Because, more, uh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Now that you say it, I, I totally take it back. What I was saying before sounds way too rosy to <laughs> at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's definitely a problem that we're not escaping. Well, and it comes down to like whose work is more important, whether or not it earns, or maybe it's who's, who, like how do you determine the importance of the work? Like whose time, or like, like who can have morning time free and who can have evening time free, you know, just like the whole, even if you get some time during the day, is that your preferred time to work? Yeah, I've been kind of wondering about that. I, I had to make a calendar with Jeremy because at first it was like, I'm not saying he would be like, what's for dinner? But it just <laughs> felt, it's, it's sometimes, some of it is like self-imposed things, you know, like no one's expecting me to do anything, but I feel like I need to figure out what to eat because I'm starving. So I just made a calendar and I'm like, this is my day. This is your day. Like on your day, I don't care what you do. You can like order out for every meal, but you figure out what we're eating. And then on my day, I'll figure out what we're eating because it's like the figuring out part that also takes yeah, time and effort. Well, that's really smart money. because that's also like fighting against the unconscious uh, triggers in your brain that are like gendered and mm-hmm. that are you are going to end up doing more of the domestic labor if you only just rely on these instincts that have been trained into you from years and years of living in America. Right. And even like the, like now, like, Again, I'm not saying he didn't do this before, but like he'll like do the dishes and it's because even the having to ask, right? Like, could you do like, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sexism. Still. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I'm really excited. Yeah. Where can our listeners connect with you online? I am on Instagram. It's the only social media platform that I'm really on. My handle is at kzalon, which is spelled K-T-Z-U-L-A-N. And I'm also at katherineman.net. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes and to everything you've referenced on this chat. And yeah, thank you so much for taking time. I I hope I can see you soon. All right. See you later. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com. This podcast is sponsored by JPG Legal. File your trademark application with an experienced trademark attorney. They have flat fee services, so there are no surprises. You have no excuse not to register your trademark. Just go to jpglegal.com. Full disclosure, JPG Legal is run by my husband. When we first met, he had a solo practice, and now he has five employees. Everyone's safely working from home right now, so I miss seeing them in person. If you need a trademark, go to jpglegal.com.